Welcome to Crossing Over, a conversation where we look and listen with curiosity for God's presence in the stories of sacred scripture and in our own lives. I'm Sarah Nichols. And I'm Daniel Lucas. I'm going to do a recap. Yeah. Last week we talked about Ruth gleaning in the fields and Boaz noticing her and talking to his workers about her. And we spoke, kind of, we touched on Boaz's initial statement to Ruth where he tells her not to leave the field and cling to his women, um, his household, and glean in his fields and not go someplace else. Um, and it was kind of cool because essentially Boaz was using really similar language um, in his conversation with Ruth as Ruth did with Naomi um, back in chapter one. Um, but now he's now he's doing this kind of language in order to care for her, not to, not in a decision on whether or not she's going to come or any of that stuff. But it's in the interest of caring for her and Naomi. And I believe we finished at verse nine, with them being at the well uh, or drawing water from the well, and we talked a little bit about how um, that's like a major theme in the in the Torah, with where people meet their wives. Is at wells, and here we have it. The story is flipped, where the woman is coming to the well, um, and that leaves us up at verse ten. Hmm. Do you want to read? Yeah, yeah. Today? From from where to I where? Thought ten to the end. Okay. She prostrated herself with her face to the ground, and said to him, "Why are you so kind as to single me out when I am a foreigner?" Boaz said in reply, "I have been told of all that you did for your mother-in-law." After the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and came to a people and came to a people you had not known before. May the Lord reward your deeds. May you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. She answered, you are most kind, my Lord, to comfort me and to speak gently to your maidservant, though I am not so much as one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here and partake of the meal, and dip your morsel in the vinegar. So she sat down beside the reapers. He handed her roasted grain, and she ate her fill and had some left over. When she got up again to glean, Boaz gave orders to his workers, You are not only to let her glean among the sheaves without interference, but you must also pull some out of the heaps and leave them for her to glean, and not scold her. She gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley and carried it back with her to the town. When her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and when she also took out and gave her what she had left over after eating her fill, her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be he who took such generous notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with, saying, The name of the man with whom I I worked today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not failed in his kindness to the living or to the dead. For Naomi explained to her, The man is related to us. He is one of our redeeming kinsmen. Ruth the Moabite said, He even told me, Stay close by my workers until all my harvest is finished. And Naomi answered her daughter-in-law, Ruth, It is best, daughter, that you go out with his girls and not be annoyed in some other field. So she stayed close to the maidservants of Boaz and gleaned until the barley harvest and the wheat harvest were finished. Then she stayed at home with her mother-in-law. 
So we're going to kind of go by chunk by chunk today instead of verse by verse, because I think it'll be helpful to keep our conversation moving at a little quicker pace, which we kind of need to do if we're going to wrap up this series ever. (laughs) So um, (laughs) I thought we'd talk about foreignness first, since that seems to be um, a theme that Ruth calls out, like, why are you recognizing me when I'm a foreigner? Um, We talked a bit about this the last two weeks, how Ruth is continuously referred to as a foreigner in the book, um, even though a lot of her actions are showing that she's more of a Hebrew than most of the Hebrews we see in the in Scripture. Like, she's mm-hmm. being faithful. Um, There's a faithfulness to the way that is uncommon yeah. in the story of, that is prescribing the way. Right. Which is creating sort of, and we're bumping into another person here, Boaz, who's the same. Right. There's this, um, there's this sweetness to who they are that invites us to examine who we might be. Right. We talked last week about the word Hebrew and how in, in Hebrew, the word Hebrew means to cross over. Um, and so in the regards that she has been one who has crossed over from one way of living to living under Yahweh's protection and living with his people. She's chosen him as her God. Um, that, that makes her a Hebrew because she's done that. And yet she's continuously referred to and seen as a foreigner. Um, because that is a part of her story as well. She's both a Hebrew and a foreigner at the same time. Um, but her identity as a foreigner keeps her as an outsider. And so having that favor shown on her is like, stands out Hmm. Um, and helps the, helps ground the story in this, showing us that this is a unique time in Israel's history where at least the main characters of the story are living out the Torah really, really well, which is not on often the picture we get in scripture. Hmm. All right. Um, so the other word that she brings up is to be recognized. Um, it's the word nakar. Um, it can get translated as noticed or, um, you pointed out favoritism. So this would be different than the word favor that we've seen in the passage before. Um, you want to say a bit about the favoritism? Well, there's, yeah, that means the singling out. So there's, I mean, there's two. Is favoritism good or bad, I guess, is the question. Yeah. And there's a way in which we know it's wrong, we know it's bad, we know it's harmful, where we um, honor certain people Mm -hmm. based on what they can do to and for us, how it will benefit us. Uh, Usually that comes with some form of injustice, right? Because if you're honoring someone not based on the merits of what, you know, if you're a judge and... I don't know, let's just say somebody has given you lots of money, and I know this doesn't happen in the real world, uh, and then you move rulings in their direction. Right. That's a problem. Right. Then there's the kind of favoritism where you, you give somebody graciously something that perhaps they do not merit, or they do not think they merit, or society doesn't think they merit, but you're doing it for them. 
you're doing it to gift them. You're doing it to love them. You're doing it um, out of graciousness, not out of some desire to move forward yourself. Right. And so the question, again, I guess is just, you know, is favoritism good or bad? And the question is, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think in this case, though, that this, so it can be favoritism, but it can also be just noticing or paying attention to, or one of the um, possible definitions I saw was discern, hmm. um, which Boaz seems to be a discerning person. So he um, he is singling her out and regarding her or discerning her. Um, because of what he's heard about her. I mean, I think there's an interesting way too to go. He's not singling her out. She's singling herself out by, sure. by bringing a certain thing and he's just got eyes to see it. Right. Right. She has single. Yeah. I like, I, ooh, I like that. She's yeah. done it and he sees it. Right. And so he sees what she's bringing and he acknowledges that. Right. Yeah. And he's doing what he what is in his power. And grace calls grace, mm-hmm. right? Her her, what she's bringing forth invites him to 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 bring a generosity back towards right. her. Right. And she's um, the other phrase in this in her comment is that I find favor in your eyes. Um, like, why should I find favor in your eyes? She repeats that in verse thirteen. It says, "May I find favor in the eyes of my Lord?" She had said it earlier in the chapter when she went out to glean in the fields, hoping that someone she would find favor in someone's eyes. So there's this idea um, of knowing that she needs that favor, and this is different than favoritism. This is this is kindness, um, chesed, or it's not actually chesed. That was wrong. It's chen um, or grace. Um, she needs that from someone who has power in this society in order for her to um, to not starve. I mean, if people aren't living by the Torah and aren't letting people glean at the edges of their fields, like even though that's the rule, if the boss comes along and says, you can't do this here, who is she to say to stand up to him? So she needs to have someone who says, yes, this is fine for you to do. Um, I just think it's really cool. It's great. Yeah. Um, and even the way she's seen to ask the questions in this way. Um, and then Boaz kind of answers her with, um, I'm going to read this because it, it reminds me of something. So think about what it might remind you of. Um, it was told to me all that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death and that you left your mother and your father and the land of your birth to come to a people you did not know in time past. Um, does it sound like someone from the past to you? Uh, it sounds like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer you're looking for is a Brahm. Yeah. Which, absolutely. Right. And it doesn't not sound like Jesus. <laughs> right, right. Right. But, but at the point of this story being told... And that's it's the tradition, right? The the it's the tradition of Abraham. It's the tradition from Adam and you know, right? Like there's a sentness. There's an always going from where where you are to to where you're going, called, being invited. And I think we forget that every generation has to leave 
it behind to follow the divine voice right in their life and so right this is this is a I don't mean a literary device, but it's a trope that plays out over and over in scripture because it's a trope that plays out in every single human life everywhere. And you don't, you don't, you, there's a part of maturing into the fullness of who you are that you are, that's withheld from you if you're not crossing over, if you're not leaving whatever you're in behind, right. following, right? It's not just the leaving. It's not like just become leavers, always leaving everywhere. But when God says, come step out of the water, onto the water, you know, go to the land that I will show you. Right. Um, we don't know what God says to Ruth, but we know that Ruth's heart's been changed. So it's one of these like non-verbalized calls to Ruth to, to go somewhere, to, to leave her mother and father behind. And anyways. Yeah. And, and at the same time, that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not also a literary device because these authors, as they're writing it, are, they're writing the stories in a way that helps you see these connections. Right, they're like, highlighting. It's right. It's like when you tell a story. A good storyteller highlights the right things, right, and doesn't highlight the wrong things. Right, so exactly. It can be literary, and be truthful. Yes, and uh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, all these silly boxes. I know. Um, so I thought that connection was really cool to Abram that I saw in here. That and this leaving your family and your kindred and going to a land. I love that. That's and so. Yeah. Like, there's this female version of a Brahm story in here, which is awesome. Um, I, I saw uh, an icon that, so there's this, so there's the the icon of the Magnificat or the Visitation is Mary and Elizabeth embracing. And John the Baptist jumps when John recognizes Jesus, in, you know, and it's just this beautiful embrace. And I, I was just browsing the interwebs and I saw one of Ruth and Naomi embracing in the way Mary and Elizabeth... Mm embrace and and this way in which right these stories of scripture stack upon each other giving meaning and layers and nuances that right like oh mary is a type of ruth yeah who yeah it's so great um okay so we see this leaving her family leaving her land and boaz seems to be recognizing beyond just this physical action, he's recognizing that there's more to Ruth than just what she's done. It's like, it, it feels like to me, Boaz is seeing this connection to Abram. He's seeing this deep abounding faithfulness in Ruth, um, as opposed to just a, Oh, you left your family and went to a new place. Um, and because of that, his next line where he says, so this is, each translation is really different in this regard. Um, so I'm reading from Alter. May the Lord requite your action and may your reward be complete from the Lord, uh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to shelter. Um, and the word shalom is actually used twice in there, or an iteration of, of shalom um, that have slight, slight variations to what they mean. Um, but in the Hebrew, you're definitely going to see that shalom and hear it twice when it's mm -hmm. being read. Um, and I think we've talked about shalom before and being more than just a peace, but a, a wholeness or a completeness um, that people in Scripture are asked to go see to the shalom of their brother or of others, people, and like with varying degrees of 
success or ending up in slavery or pits. It's always costly to it's, see to your your brother, your sister, Shalom. That yes. thing that all humans are asked to do for each other is costly. And part of the reason it's costly is because not everybody's about it. Right. Um, and then the other reason it's costly is because that's part of the invitation is for us to move from, right. from selfish taking. Because there's a way of, I think there's a way of receiving that, right? A non-selfish taking would be, I think, receiving this way of living. But but part of how we're meant to live is to be people who are sent to give, to bring. Right. Right. I'm going to read that verse using the word shalom where it shows up so that you can kind of hear it a little bit. Um, May Yahweh shalom your work and deeds and the wages of you shall be shalom with Yahweh under whose wings you come to trust or seek refuge in. So to me, that sounds a lot like Boaz is seeing to the shalom of Ruth. And and via Ruth, she also Naomi. Yeah. Well, everyone. I don't, I don't want to jump too, too far ahead. Sure. But um, so when we... When we make our way um, to the mealtime, in verse fourteen, Boaz said to her, "Come, you know, invites her to to to, to a meal, uh, and then she sits down beside the reapers, and he hands her roasted grain, which means Boaz is eating lunch with the reapers. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, right? Like, there's this thing about Boaz where he." This seems to be who he is, not just only to Ruth, but he's bringing right. grace, graciousness to everyone in the various forms. You can't be the same graciousness to everybody, right? It's right. the same. You can't be the same graciousness to everybody. So, she, so he, he's bringing what's appropriate, or right? Yeah, what's needed for her moment, and. That that kind of leads me to what you see in these next verses that I'm I'm not going to reread through. But he, the sitting down and eating with her, and she ends up having too much food. She's sated, and there's leftovers. Um, and then and then making her having her glean like from the middle of the field instead of the edges, and then even telling his workers to like pull some out and leave it behind for her so that she just gets like way more than she would if she were on her own. And I just I see this overabundance coming from Boaz towards her. He doesn't just give her enough. He doesn't just let her glean on the edges. He gives her an abundance of both pre-cooked and uncooked food. So that when she goes home that night to Naomi, like normally they would still have to do a whole bunch of work in order to make bread before she could eat. But because he sent her with extra pre-made food, like this is like the first doggy bag in (laughs) literature. (laughs) Like, here, take this home. Pack it up for home. I love leftovers. Um, and um, besides the fact that it's not normal to have the gleaners in the field eating lunch with your workers or eating dinner or whatever meal it was, like, you don't invite them in right. to have a meal. Like, but Boaz does. Like, it's just this, like, it's this over the top, ridiculous abundance that he gives her. Above and beyond. Yep. Um, There's this. Yeah. Uh, the the so the midrash on Ruth <clears throat> makes this well. Here, here's just what it says. 
Come and consider how great is the power of the righteous and how great is the power of righteousness and how great the power of those who do kindly deeds for they shelter neither in the shadows of the morning nor the shadows of the wings of the earth nor the shadow of the sun nor in the shadow of the wings of the hyoth or the cherubim or the seraphim but under whose wings do they shelter under the shadow of of him at whose word the world was created, as it says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of Adam take refuge in the shadow yeah. of your wings. Which is yeah. here, which for me yeah. is how does how does Boaz, how is he able to articulate that that's um, what she's done? Mm-hmm. Well, because that's what he's done. Right. He's He has sheltered there, right? He's not sheltering under the provision... The, uh, of how the earth has responded to his leadership or the 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 dumb luck of his life or right the, we see we see in Boaz's actions repeatedly that he's sheltered under the, the wings of the most high and therefore he he recognizes that activity in Ruth's life too right yeah that's so fun yeah um do we have anything more to say about this uh, um, this section of their conversation? I do, but I know we've got we have time. Well, we're looking at Eucharist. We're looking at communion. We're looking at the. I mean, this whole section, really. Of, I mean, I don't know how far you know to go back, but you have the foundations of what it means to come and. To come to the bread of life in the in this in the house of bread and receive and it's I mean you know how far back do I go well I'll just go to to where we started today right she 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 comes right and she falls down and she seeks kindness and she says why are you why are you so kind to me when I'm an outsider and 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 Boaz says you're not an outsider yeah and then. Right, he says, "I know your story. I know you've come from far. I know this, but you've you've repented. You've turned. You've crossed over. You've left for life." Um, and then she says, "You know, she acknowledges his generosity again. Uh, comfort is in there, right, Nahum? Nahum, yep. Uh, <clears throat> she's being called a maidservant here, which is you definitely want to connect that with." Um, Mary saying, let it be to me according to your word. I'm the Lord's bondservant. But then it gets like real deep here. Boaz says to her, come over here and partake of the meal and dip your morsel in the vinegar. We're at the we're at the table, or the table yeah. is at this moment, and it's the Passover table. So now we're stacking like the, the various layers of what it means to come. He hands her roasted grain. He gives her he gives her the bread. And then he gives her enough bread. He send, like you said, right, sends her home uh, with bread. And how does he, you know, he sends her out with a blessing. Right. And it's, I mean, it's just. Yeah. It's, it's so. We often want to think of Jesus as independent. (laughs) And, but Jesus is like, all these images throughout the Old Testament are building towards him in a way that then he, when he brings these things to their fullness and their completeness, people are recognizing it because they've seen it before. 
but it just hasn't been the fullness of it. It hasn't been the, the complete picture. And in Jesus, it is all made complete. Like, but it doesn't come out of the blue. He's not inventing the wheel. He's not reinventing, oh. right? He doesn't come to abolish the law, the Torah, or to give a new one, but to fill it up. Right. Um, right. To show you, the, show us the true meaning of all of this, that like the culmination point is another way of putting it. Like, he's not just creating all of this out of thin air. Like, he's been creating it all along. Right. It's been, it's been percolating and growing and moving. Right. You, you, so, sorry to, to back up. Yeah. Just, But if you start at verse 4 and you make your way um, all the way through, you know, 14, 15, 16, you've got you have what what you could call i'm not suggesting you do call it this but you could call it like a it's a table liturgy mm-hmm. or you have all of the steps that so when we come to the table yeah. we're we're walking through all of these sort of scenes um, not in a perfect way not in a right where we're reading from a script but we recognize the back and the forth the give and the take the bids and the requests that all and it all begins with the lord be with you yeah and I mean, and I just love that what you also have in this moment is a a double portion or a a generous generosity, right? Because he doesn't just allow her to pick, right? He allows her to pick, and then he gives the instructions. By the way, in the future, um, let her glean. Don't hassle her. But also, while you're letting her glean and not hassling her, shove some of the stuff you've gleaned off. He's saying, glean for her, right? Like what? Glean for her. And then he eats with her and sends her home with it's yeah. right. There's like four, there's at least four layers of provision here. Yeah. None of which, uh, I think we do in a, in a good way, owe to each other, these things, but none of which he would have been a cost. He would have paid no social price by saying, get out of here, Ruth. Right. Right. It would have been, nobody would have thought a thing about it. Right. So what he's doing here is not for favor, all right, bringing it back to you know where it started, he's not doing it for favor from the people around him to to curry a sort of social approval of his life. He's doing it at some sort of a cost to himself, right? Maybe a large one because, in fact, he is being kind to an outsider. Yep. But he's doing it because he sees Ruth, he recognizes her, and yeah, yeah. and this. This recognition is not like, oh, I recognize you. This is, he's recognizing something deep within her. Right. Because he doesn't know her as a person. He's not like, oh, I've seen this girl before. He's recognizing something in her spirit, in her heart that is, yeah. It's the seeing that Mm -hmm. is maybe seeing in the way God sees. Yeah. It's recognizing the humanity. Yeah. The goodness, um, yeah. I mean, the light and the darkness and calling the light out of, yeah. Um, yeah. not that being a Moabite was a, just a dark, but socially yeah. it was. Yeah. And I I was thinking, I mean, it, it can be easy when we get to the end and know that he ends up being her redeemer, that to think, well, he's just doing this because he knows it's his obligation. and. In a regard, in one regard, it is some of his obligation because she is a family member, um, but he's not a- obliged to do what he's doing. Like he might be obligated to let her clean at his fields or to show her some sort of favoritism, 
um, as a family member, but not not to the level that he is doing. And he's not the first in line, as we later realize. So he's not looking at her going, I'm going to be the one that's going to redeem her. He is just looking at showing her kindness and showing her like an abundance because out of his abundance, he's able to do that. Um, I do want to move on to the conversation between Ruth and Naomi. If we can. Okay. Um, So I just have this picture of Ruth coming back from like gleaning and when you're gleaning, you probably expect to not really bring back very much. Like you're getting like the dregs you're getting, you're not getting full sheaves of grain. You're getting like little bits and stuff. So hopefully by the end of the day, you have enough to make a few cakes of bread and um, have some food to eat that night. Um, So that's probably what Naomi is sitting at home, hoping that Ruth has enough to make enough bread for the two of them to eat something that night and be a little bit satiated. And here comes Ruth with like (laughs) bags and bags of like food, essentially some pre-made. And Naomi's like, what? what happened there is bread in the house of bread (laughs) right and her reaction says it all i mean she's like where did where in the world were you gleaning today and where did you work like how did this like how did this happen and then says may he who recognized you be blessed um which we already talked about that someone noticed you someone saw something deeper you you didn't just get this by picking up scraps at the edge of the field Um, not only that, but like, I don't even have to like work to make bread tonight. Like I can use the stuff you brought tomorrow. I can work all day and make bread. We have food to eat tonight because it's already been cooked. Like, come on now. That's like, what a gift. Um, and Naomi, or sorry, Ruth then says, Oh, the name of the man I worked with today was Boaz, which tells me that Naomi had, we got told about Boaz before, but Naomi had not told Ruth about Boaz at this point. Um, And Naomi's reaction is, blessed is he, the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness with the living and with the dead, which is a phrase she used back in chapter one, verse eight, Mm -hmm. um, when she was talking to Naomi or to Ruth and Orpah. Um, And then she goes on to say, well, hey, like first real quick with that. Like Naomi's whole spirit just shifts like that emptiness she was speaking of at the end of chapter one that I went out full and I came back empty. She didn't, she said that from a lack of hope. And in this moment, I think Naomi's like, oh, there's still hope. Like God is taking care of us. Who's the living and who's the dead here? Right. Because there are layers, right? Yes. Um, you could do the leveret marriage here where, oh, there's a possibility that my son will not be childless. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if Naomi is the living and Mara is the dead, or there's a way to, for right, this is Naomi saying something deeply profound about God's presence with her yeah. through all of this, yeah. which then funnels right back to one of my I go, I, you know what, there's all these, there are these specific spots in scripture that are hot spots mm-hmm. for like nexuses. And I seem to be ever in Psalm 139. Where can I uh, go from your spirit? Where can I hide? If I go, you know, if I, if I fly to the wings of yeah. the morning, if I go to, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I descend to the grave, you are there. Like this is, this is that sentiment 
in a real life statement where Naomi's saying, again, uh, blessed be he of the Lord who has not failed in his kindness mm -hmm. That's to the living probably and Finn, the dead. I would assume. I should double check it, but... Um. Yeah, I just, I feel like there's this shift in Naomi to ho towards hope in this moment when she sees the abundance of which has been bestowed upon Ruth. Um, you know, we don't know how often this kinsman redeemer stuff was actually playing out the way it was supposed to um, in Israel. So there may have been reason for Naomi to doubt whether or not it would actually happen and play out the way it could. Um and after a Leverite marriage is, is designed to be like a brother, um, of which there are none because <laughs> they both died. So you're, you're now going layers deep into the family in order. Um, the obligation's not quite at the same level. Um, so it, Naomi may not be anticipating that this will happen if they return home. But in this moment, she's like, oh, maybe it, maybe there's more here for us. Well, you have to wonder... If I'm Naomi, what I'm wondering is when I come back, when I return, there's some, sh seems to be some shame or there seems to be some difficulty and I would, it would be easy for me to imagine that she has some shame about it and or an uncertainty about how she'll be greeted, mm -hmm. right? Like she's not coming back as a hero, <laughs> She left when things got hard. Right. They left when things got hard. Whether she wanted, right, for, matters not why. It's just that's how she's seen. She's seen as someone who, when there was no bread, there was a famine in the in the house of bread, her and her family left. Right. Reasonable. Yep, absolutely, 100% reasonable. I mean, that's the story how many people are here in the States right now, right? Like, I've got a friend who's Irish, and he's like, yeah, we my family came over during the potato famine. Like, yeah. That's why we're here. And so no shame in that. And yet when you return back, you might wonder, is there, are, there, are they going to think things of me? Sure. So even if the Leverett marriage is in full swing in Israel, um, you know, during this, Naomi's got to wonder what's for her. Right. How will she be greeted? And look at all this grace she's getting greeted with. Right. Yeah. A surprising level of grace. Grace, grace, so, grace. Um, but then Naomi does choose to say, "This man is our. Uh, this man is related to us. He is of our redeeming kin." Um, and so I thought we could talk about that a little bit, like what the that kinsman means. redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of different places and ways that this plays out in the scripture. Um, it kind of initially comes from Leviticus 25 and 27 and Numbers 5 and 35. But in these passages, the, the kinsman redeemer has more to do with land and individual persons than with the Leverite marriage. So we'll get to that in a second. Sure. Um, but the, there's a continuity of the idea at the same time that if someone becomes so impoverished because of either like um, either things out of their control like weather and you know locusts or things like that that destroy their crops or from years of bad decision making in their farming who knows and they have to get to a point where they sell their land their brother 
and or then other family members are obligated if they have the resources to buy that land so that it stays in the family. And then that person who had to sell it can buy it back from them at any point. Um, but then definitely gets it back at the end of seven years if we're if we're doing what we're supposed to with the tour. Seven or, or 50. Sorry, 50. It is yeah. 50. Um, but... Um, and then it also has to do with if they if they get so poor and destitute that they sell themselves into slavery, right. if one of their family members has the money to buy them back, they are obligated to do so. So there's this with the kinsman redeemer in the initial setup is this idea of caring for our our family. Well, what you were talking about earlier, seeing to the shalom right. of our yeah, and right if, of if, our kin. Right, and if everyone does that for their kin, then no one needs to do it for. Not Ken, well, because everyone's taking care of their Ken anyway. Right, and then there's a there's a thing that's owed to just our neighbor. Right. So then, but then in Deuteronomy twenty five, we have um, what's called the Leveret marriage, which um, I just realized I just found out not too long ago that I had always assumed that had to do with Levi, and I was like, why is Levi? Because oh. the name Levi, it sounds similar. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why has this got Levi's name on it? That seems weird because it's not only the tribe of Levi that has this. Anyway, it sounds like Levi's name, but it's not. Hmm. Leverite is actually a Latin term, and it means brother-in-law. <laughs> so it's just, it's just brother-in-law marriage. That's all. It's just a Latin term. Um, why are we stuck with calling the Latin term? Um, even even Jewish people do it. Which is funny to me that, like, they don't have a, like, there's a Hebrew word for brother-in-law that they could, anyway. Right. Um, but that, so in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's in verses 5 through 10. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies, and a son he does not have, the wife of the dead man is not to go outside in marriage to a strange man. Her brother-in-law is to come to her and take her for himself as a wife, doing the brother-in-law's duty by her. Now it shall be that the firstborn that she bears will be established under the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Um, and then, oh, I won't read the rest of it. It's like, what happens if he says no? Um, like, she takes off a sandal and shakes it at him and calls him some kind of... <laughs> It's kind of a funny thing, but it's a, a way of publicly shaming shaming them. Um, so put that in your arsenal of, of shaking your sandals. Well, no, it's his sandal. She takes off his sandal and shakes it at Spits in his face. She has to draw off his sandal from his foot and spit in his face and speak up and say, Thus shall be done to the man who does not build up the house of his brother. His name shall be called in Israel the house of the one with the drawn off sandal. I mean, I, hey, look, we're getting into chapter three today, hey, guys. Look. Because what does she do in chapter three, verse four? Naomi tells her to go lie down at his feet and <laughs> cover right, his feet. Which we'll get to. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, there, this is the obligation. And, and the reason for it is in verse um, six that his name not be blotted out from Israel. So, this whole idea of this redeeming marriage is in order to like preserve the continuity of the of the line it's how land is passed down it's how lineage is passed down um it would also mean that because this this first son would belong to that brother then that son would inherit the land of his father so it would keep the it would keep the land in his father's line um so that they wouldn't become destitute um i assume like the next kid would belong to the 
now husband. It's only the firstborn, it seems like, but um, it really speaks to the importance of this concept um, of the names not being blotted out um, in the the continuity of the line. Um, It also makes it a really selfless act on the part of the brother. Um, Because in a culture where lineage is everything, that firstborn kid doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your brother who's dead. Wow. Well, and not to... Well, it it just... So this would be one of those moments when you would go, okay, how do I read script? How do I read scripture? What is... Well, the problem is the Matthew genealogy has Boaz as the father of Obed. Yeah. So... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And Matthew knows the scripture, right? So yeah. it's like, okay, so what, the genealogy, at the least, the genealogy we're getting in Matthew that has Ruth, the Moabite in it, which Ruth, the, the, the foreign Moabite, right? Not Jewish, not Hebrew by birth. We're not talking about the family you're born into. Right. Uh, but, yeah, so it's... Well, right. It's really important in the in the culture, but it's also not so important in God's eyes, which well, is it, an interesting play. Like, because that that whole lineage and the brother thing and the the firstborn is super important in the culture, but over and over and over again, we see God picking the secondborn or the youngest or not the firstborn um, so frequently. So while the culture is concerned about it and god sets up things in the torah to help preserve that culture he also does things consistently throughout that that pull at the threads of that culture and and um upset the bucket a little bit well and what's important is not the culture right right what's important is what we do with our lives how are we existing because you can follow all of the laws you can follow and i mean that Religiously, I mean that socially, right? And you can still be a terrible, un, uh, unshalom-seeking person for those around you. Right? You can, you yeah. can be um, unimpeachable and still miss the mark. Right? Or you can be like Boaz, and you can see beyond. You can abide by the Torah mm-hmm. at in both spirit and in. Right. Word. And and Ruth, yep. where you can be born to the wrong, b- born into, have life trajectory set for you in such a way, and you have to turn yourself out of that. You have to turn from it into life. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, in order so that we can just dive into chapter three next week, um, after this conversation, briefly, Naomi's told Ruth to go, to keep going to these fields. Like stick with him through the end of the harvest and cling to his girls. And that's what she does. And the cling to his girls, I think, is super critical because I think for the first time we see Naomi going, let me give you some guidance. She sees a way. Yep. She sees a, a way redemption might be coming. She even says that, right? He's our redeemer. Yep. So she says, listen, don't go getting connected with the men. Right? She, like... Don't, I mean, what I hear is, don't don't get involved with one of the men. Don't, don't end up don't marrying one of the reapers. Don't fall in love with one of the reapers. <laughs> it's Boaz. Right. Right? And not because he's got money. I, right. Uh, 
he's a generous man. He's a generous, and he's he's in our he's in of our kin. Right. So this could be right and good. It's it's right. It's good. And she's giving here right because up to this point she's. Listen, the word I want to say is manipulative. She's not manipulating. She has not been manipulating things. She didn't say go to Boaz's field. She didn't say, all right, Ruth, when you not get yet. out there, there's this guy. He's got some stuff. He's, he's the right person with the right things in all the right ways. She just says, yes, go glean, right? And then comes back and then says, oh, you've met him. Okay, there's a thing that seems to be happening here right. that God seems to be doing. Then she gives her word of guidance. Yeah. Right? Then she's like, hey, don't. Attach yourself to his girls. Yeah. Keep leaning. Yep. It's a weird place to stop. It is, but it is the end of a chapter, so it works. <laughs> and I mean, technically, we started chapter three because I said something from it, right? Sure. So we we have crossed that yeah. threshold. We've we crossed have, over. From we have crossed over. We have Hebrewed into chapter three. All right. Toodles. Toodles. You said it. I did. <laughs> <laughs>